This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donation from people like you. Good morning. I was just talking to Bernadette, the lady who's been sitting over there with the long black hair. And she got some, uh, she was taking her bag down to her car and she decided to turn on her phone and she had a message of some uh, family tragedy. So she's, she's going to leave as soon as her brother gets here to drive her. didn't for now want to share the details uh, but so I think we can respect that it's powerful you know when to be with someone uh, let alone experience it ourselves but just to be with someone who's just received some uh, difficult information, some news like that. The intensity of it and the uh, the way it takes hold. I said to her, well, what do you want to do with your car? And she has a car here. And she says, um, mm, I can't think right now. When I read the title of Billy Collins' book, you know, The Art of Drinding, uh, that's what I was thinking of. I was thinking of uh, the intensity of our lives. And how that intensity can take hold of us, you know, in a way it makes us, in a way it unmakes us, you know, it undoes us. How amazing it is, you know, we can do something as just uh, sit and feel the intensity of our own being in all the ways we feel it, you know, and all the ways we think about it and imagine it and remember it and project it. And and then just something as simple as sitting in it can have this uh, profound effect. And then every now and then something in the course of our lives comes to rest, comes into being with its own intensity. Like we're immersed in it. And the factors of awakening are, are the 
the factors of perfection that I've been mentioning. You know. Up until now, I, I described this, the fifth factor, you know, the three I hadn't got to were virya, which most fundamentally is energy. And then the next one I described as abiding. But the word in Sanskrit and Pali is jhana, which, as some of you know, means immersion or absorption. You know, we're absorbed in something. We're absorbed in life because we're part of life. We're absorbed in it. And then... Um, We separate from it, we individuate our consciousness, and we yearn for connection. And we have problems with that connection. Sometimes we're not having enough of it, and sometimes we're having too much of it. <laughs> or sometimes we're having problems with the the way it's appearing or expressing itself. And then the last factor is insight, you know, panya or prajna. Yeah. the energy of living life individually, collectively. You know. Bernadette was saying, I have to go and be with my family. Yeah. It's a funny thing having a family, you know. Sometimes it feels like such a blessing. And then other times, such a curse, you know. Those relationships so deep. Uh, nourishing, conflicted. Uh, impossible. Um, so many things, you know all woven together. The intimacy of being. And the deep request of practice, you know, what can we, what can we take from this? What a foolish notion. Uh, you know, what, what a contradiction of the generosity of, it's the first parami is not actually generosity, it's giving. It's just the verb, dana, the verb, which is a verb, which is giving. You know? The perfection of giving. And, and the incident with 
just talking to Bernadette, you know, made me think of a poem. And I was thinking, hmm, look at how my mind works. You know, I've been thinking, the poem had occurred to me earlier in the week, the Blackwater River. The black river of loss, whose other side is salvation. You know, we we sit and uh, almost invariably, one way or another, something intense happens. Something that's charged with energy. Sometimes that energy is serene. Sometimes that energy is concentrated and bright. Sometimes that energy is dark. And we're like, we experience a sense of being that's almost like foreign to us. But however it manifests, it has an intensity. Even when we try to, um, not intentionally, but uh, digress, distract, separate, suppress, still the intensity of living surrounds us. And the, the deep challenge of practice is to be part of that energy. Because that's what we are. We are part of it. We are part of this process of living. You know? We're part of this stream of human existence that goes from generation to generation. There's an image, you know, in Buddhism that, that contrasts what you might call the biological body to the Dharma body. Uh, in the biological body, you know, there's semination, there's genetic codes passed through the physical blood from body, human body to human body. And then in the Dharma body, there is, uh, the image is that there's a kind of a, a transmission of, um, from generation to generation of compassionate wisdom. And it has its own code of being. And and that is humans, we are, we're attracted to that.
from a very early age. Maybe we're more attracted to it when we're two than we are when we're 22. I think usually we are. 22. Uh, we have better things to think about and feel. <laughs> usually a product of our hormones. But, but this heritage, too, that flows through us uh, somewhat mysteriously, you know. The black water of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. Sometimes the immensity of it, of getting that kind of news. And it's almost like it short circuits your mind. You know. Often when people have um, an acute traumatic experience, you know, and you say to them, are you hungry? have you eaten? And they look at you and say, um, I don't know. I don't know if I'm hungry. You know, it's like there's, um, the immensity, the intensity that we're feeling at that moment sort of can't be can't be contained within um, what our mind constructs, right down to even knowing if you need to eat or not. Yeah. And when we sit in the middle of it, something is realized. Sometimes the realization is evident. So sometimes it's it's very uh, distinct. Oh, and then I drop that thing that I've been holding so tight, and I just thought it's just what happened. Nobody's to blame. It was just how it was. Where we see some emotional thread that runs back through our life. Hmm. I tend to hold things in that kind of emotional disposition. And sometimes that kind of loss, that kind of letting go, is a great relief. Ah. It's like we feel lighter, we feel younger, we feel more open. 
we feel like we've given and received. We feel something about being reborn. Something about salvation. And then sometimes in the intensity of being, it feels like something has been taken away. The world we've woven together, you know, even though seldom do we think how sweet, how wonderful, and how utterly, utterly grateful I am. And then some part of it's taken away, and it's like, ah, we feel the tragedy. And that intensity too, that immersion, you know, um, you, you know, the notion that our world was permanent, that that our world was going to stay just like this. Um, it never was. It's not its nature of life. It, it, it's not a permanent, fixed entity. It's an ever-moving, like the black water. And it's shaken, and the deep truth of impermanence is presented. Sometimes the shocking deep truth. And sometimes it casts us beyond any kind of understanding or knowing or meaning. And of course, our human tendency is to rediscover how to live. And it's both, you know, an utterly practical and appropriate tendency. And then it has the shadow that then we want to recreate permanency. But in that disruption, where the world is cracked and the light shines through the cracks, um, something is seen. And then how, how wonderful that in our sitting, even though often it feels like it asks more of us than we have to give, Even in that, something cracks open. And as I say, sometimes it's evident what it was, and sometimes it's not. 
sometimes you find yourself noticing, oh, that issue that was there before Shishin is still here. It just weighs less. You know? the, the, the tendrils of dissatisfaction and distress that it usually sets out have retracted. And do we now know how to do that? Hmm. Sometimes, something. And then Mary Oliver continues and pretend she's God and makes a declaration about being alive. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. I think this is one of the great gifts of being a poet, you know. You know? Can you imagine a scholar trying to get away with that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they might try it. <laughs> um, And then just to think, what would the three things you would say? To live in this world, you must be willing to do three things. You must be able. Mm. It's kind of scary, even in that construct. Because if you're not able to do those three things, then watch your option. <laughs> um, and what would you say to yourself? No. And I would say this, that in this Dharma body that flows generation to generation, there are many variations of those three things, or those one thing, or those ten things. There are many formulations. And um, I remember the first time I did a Rinzai Shishin. And it was with Sasaki Roshi. And he gave us a koan. And then every day he would lecture on that koan. It's about this, it's about this, it's about this. What is it about, you know? And you can't just say, I'm just going to repeat what somebody else said, you know? Because this is your life. Nobody else's formula, you know? fits your life. Now, their words can become your words, but that's different from just repeating them. They just come in through your ear and out through your mouth, you know. They have to go into the body of your being 
and become yours. It's a very interesting process. And it's part of the intensity of living. You know, we have our intense experiences and then we're challenged to keep living, to keep relating, you know. What do you say to someone who's just had a powerful, tragic experience? You make it up in the moment. Any trite phrase that you would say would just be ridiculous. I always say this, hmm, do you really? You know. Life is too immense, too unruly, too magnificent for us to try to have some pat phrase. Now, there may be some phrase that sparks our being, that gives voice to the heart of our being. in Mary Oliver, uh, maybe in her own efforts to speak from that place. Uh, her inclinations were to be reclusive. She, she was living on Cape Cod, still has a place there, with her partner of 30 years. and. Uh, very private person and, and so her her partner's name was almost ridiculously called Molly Malone <laughs> guess somebody has to be called that <laughs> and Molly Malone died subsequent poetry you could see in a beautiful way her uh, her exploration of salvation in deep loss the black water of a loss whose other side is salvation whose meaning none of us will ever know to live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. Yeah. Achan Cha, famous um, Theravadan teacher, 
gave this lecture, which somehow became very famous. He held up a glass and he said, This glass is already broken. This glass is impermanent. You know, this glass is not going to last forever. He didn't say all that. He just said it's already broken. <laughs> I just could have making sure you got the point. <laughs> this glass is already broken. And so I can relate to it and appreciate its unbrokenness. Not because it's a permanent characteristic, but because um, how wonderful, how exquisite. Here it is. You know, to love what is here right now. To, to love the fact that in the uh, in the flow of life, uh, this moment can be itself and have the beauty of the moment. I don't know if you noticed, but in the dining room on the window side, someone broke um, a ceramic, I think it was a cup. It was an intense ochre orange with a black base. And it smashed into many pieces. And they just swept them together into a space about this side. And then they left them there. I don't know if it was intentional or unintentional, but uh, I looked at it and uh, I was kind of like taken by the beauty of it. You know? Smashed into pieces, but there it is. Hmm? Is it more or less than what it was when it was in a different shape? Do we really want to be reckless enough to love knowing that whatever it is, whoever it is we love, is going to uh, stop existing? To love what is immortal and to hold it against your bones knowing your life depends on it. Hmm. A risky business. It's a risky business to have a family, to have uh, people in your life who matter to you. That when something happens to them, it happens to you. About a decade ago, in San Francisco, 
I heard this rabbi say, if there's one homeless person on the street, all of our lives are diminished. Depending upon how you want to count it, we have between eight and 14,000 people on the street in San Francisco. Maybe six, six. Hold it against your bones, knowing your life depends on it. Mm -hmm. A risky business. And then when it's time to let it go, let it go. Easier said than done. And yet, with each exhale, no, we can learn something about how to do that. With each inhale, with each engaging, we can learn how to start over. And then the wisdom of all that, um, in, the, in the development of Buddhist thought, um, in, in earlier Buddhism, the wisdom is more um, like seeing in detail the conditioned nature of existence, you know? To see in detail, you know, Buddhist psychology is to see in detail the interplay of different constituents of consciousness and, and how when they take different configurations, it creates a different, con a different conclusion or consequence. Yeah. And then as Buddhism developed, um, this notion that, to my mind, Mary Oliver is hinting at, it just goes beyond, you know, whatever the human mind can conjure up. Every and any moment of existence is so amazing, so vast, so intentionally itself. How could any words encapsulate it all? How could any formulation of consciousness 
fully describe what is. And so that kind of wisdom is sometimes called wisdom beyond wisdom. The wisdom of not holding on to any fixed view or any fixed formulation. And then I would say that in Zen, the play between the two, you know, What is it? What is it to live a human life? Well, if you say don't know, well then, what are you going to do? Sit here in this room forever? If you say Shashin is over, well, where are you going? What's your intentionality for where you're going? Where do you think you're going? What do you think is going to happen there? What's your intention in going there? Yeah. The practicality of life is to have an answer, a formulation. And the wisdom beyond wisdom is to not think, literally, or feel, that that's the whole story of what existence is. No? This, this is my working hypothesis about life. And to know that it's mortal, to know that it has its own uh, limitation. Sometimes it's humbling to watch ourselves in zazen. And the mind grasps a thought. And acts like, I know. Hmm. And then add emotion to that thought. I know this is reality and this feeling, this emotion is absolutely correct. Can we hold the stuff that we're made of, the conditioned nature of our own existence, you know? What a tragedy if we shut it off, if we cut it off. Yeah. But can we live it? Can we let it pour through us? Can we enjoy it? Can we create a life individually and collectively?
Can we love what we love and hold it against our bones? And can we know it's just uh, how it is for me? And even how it is for me is more than the ideas and feelings I describe it with. There can be a utility in saying, to live in this world, you must be able to do three things, or two, or seven. Three is a good number. It's fairly easy to remember three things. Um, and what would your three things be? can even the question connect you to the heart of your own being? And if it does that, does it really matter what you come up with? And your difficulties, can they connect you to the heart of your own being? Zazen connected to the heart of your own being? Is it really of any use if it doesn't move in that direction? If it pushes us away from more connection? What is it to uh, to move towards the heart of our being with with all its characteristics, some of which we yearn for more of? and some of which we'd really, really rather not have to deal with. What is it to be willing to be in the middle, to be immersed in, to be absorbed in, You know, I've often thought that these, the, these characteristics, you know, virya, 
jhana and panya were crafted around the subtle details of meditation. But I think this is also an utterly valid way of looking at them. There's this kind of existential way that they're asking something fundamental about life. How do you touch the energy and intensity of being alive? And, And how do you immerse in it? whether you want to call that the heart of being or any other thing you want to call it. And then how do you get in touch with and live what's important about a human life? To me, it's fitting that we end our sashin with a well-being ceremony. Because the very vulnerability of impermanence often, usually, touches the heart of our being. whether we like it or not. And how to do that with compassion, you know, is, is uh, a wonderful support for us. I wrote down two names to put on uh, in the group. Elenisa Matos, and Rosanna Matos. The, the mother is dying and the daughter has discovered she has cancer. And who's not going to die? many others will be born. So it goes. Um, So, maybe you'll come up with your own three things you must be able to do. Or maybe you'll just look at the black water rushing along with the flecks of white, of uh, foam surging with it. Or muse upon how they've scraped all the soil and the plants off those concrete slabs. Uh, Is that the face of progress? What were they thinking? <laughs> you know.
expression, its own, you know, exquisite expression of being. Yeah. Mm. It's already broken, and no, it's not. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. It's a funny thing, a human life. There's lots to complain about. And, uh, and there's lots to be grateful for. 